Hi, this is Colleen. Before we get to this week's episode, I wanted to offer a content warning. This episode deals with some very sensitive topics on the subject of abuse. So it's something that you don't want to listen to around children. And if you have gone through your own situations, um, I would also recommend being careful. It, It might be a lot to listen to. And now we'll go to the episode. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And we are continuing, I guess it's kind of not an official series, but we've been talking a lot about abuse. And one of the things I wanted to say is why we're talking about this. Um, Since I started Theology Gals, literally the first week Uh, of the podcast, I got my very first message from someone with an abuse situation in the church. There's been a steady stream ever since, and I don't think I realized just how big of a deal that abuse was in the church and how many stories there are of all sorts, whether it's domestic violence in the home and the church doesn't deal with it well, or it's spiritual abuse in the church, sometimes sexual abuse in the church that is not dealt with And I mean, it's dealt with foolishly, like police aren't called, you know, different things. But I think we're at a very good time in kind of our church history where we're talking about these things. You if you talk to some older people, you'll find you'll hear stories of people that were in abuse situations and didn't know what to do because it was never talked about. And one of the things that we wanted to do is bring some people on to tell their stories, because I think it's helpful to hear those stories. We had Craig and Ty on a few weeks ago, and they told their spiritual abuse story. And today we have Adia on, and we're so grateful that you're willing to come on and share your story. For anyone that's never been through an abuse situation, it's not easy to talk about, especially on a podcast. So we're, we're grateful that she's willing to do that. So just for starters, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Adia Barkley. I am a college senior at Liberty University. I am studying strategic communications. I'm hoping to go into journalism at some point. I want to write about church abuse, and I want to write about these situations that come up, because I think there are a lot of them. So like you were saying earlier, there's a lot of people in the church who are just beginning to tell their stories, and I want to help bring those stories to light. I am recently engaged, got engaged a few weeks ago, and probably getting married this summer. Uh, thank you for being on and being willing to talk with us. I know it's kind of a daunting task to to talk about your own life publicly. Um, both Colleen and I have been pretty open about some things recently about that we've gone on have gone on in our own lives and our own church background. So, um, so thank you again. Would you be willing to tell us a little bit about? Your, your own faith and church background? Sure. As far as my own faith, I am, I was saved at 11 years old. I grew up in very different denominations. I grew up in, like my first church was an SBC church, but I was also involved in the NCFIC and the CPC. I have kind of a dramatic story as far as my church involvement goes. Honestly, when I talk about it, I normally call it a cult. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they refer to it as authoritarian fundamentalism. That's something I get from Joan or Jotini of Control Free Christianity. But it's just a very legalistic, fundamentalist group of churches that I intended. 
Normally, when I'm giving this short overview, I like to say that there were two excommunications and two arranged marriages. That's not exactly the best way of telling it, though, because I didn't actually get married either time. Both arranged marriages fell through. And honestly, I'm not sure if I was excommunicated two times. I might have only been excommunicated once. That's something we can get into as we're talking through stuff. You know, I think some people don't um, even know that that exists. The basically arranged marriages. Do you have a right of refusal? (laughs) No, I didn't have a right of refusal. So the way that that worked, I call it arranged marriage, but really it was just courtship. It was a courtship that was arranged for me by the elders. And I couldn't refuse it unless I had a reason to think that the person was sexually immoral. And I didn't. And I couldn't break off a courtship unless I had, you know, some very serious reason. And I knew that if I did break off a courtship, I wasn't going to get another chance. So the attitude towards it was like, either I marry the person that the church picks out for me, or I never get married, and I don't get to pick. (laughs) So it still is definitely an arranged marriage, just we didn't ever call it that when I was growing up. You know, I've heard of, you know, the courtship scenarios where the parents kind of decide, but I don't think I've, I knew that, I mean, it makes sense where the elders decide, except for in like a Mormon polygamous circles or something like that. So I understand yeah. why, why you call your church a cult. Share with us a little bit about your church abuse situation. What was that like? And what are some things you mm-hmm. went through? All right. Well, whenever I talk about abuse in the church, I normally start with just kind of like the foundational teachings that led to that abuse, because I think that those are important. We can't really understand the abuse and how much it impacts us unless we get what doctrines got us there. Mm-hmm. So a couple of those teachings would be the idea that the father is the mediator between his wife and his children and God. And whenever I say mediator, I mean it literally. The wife and the children cannot come to God except through their husband or father. And the only representation of God that those children and wife can have, the only communication they can have with God is through that man. So you have almost like a pope or a priest of the family. And we did call them that. We called them the priesthood, right? The other teaching that plays a lot into this is a teaching that we called no mitigating circumstances, which was there's no excuse not to obey. No matter what you're told to do by your father, no matter what that looks like, you have to do it. You have to submit. Even if it's sinful? So our pastor wouldn't explicitly say, Hmm. even if it's sinful, you have to obey. But they would talk a lot about how you aren't responsible for your sense as a child. Like you're ultimately your father was responsible for you. So you didn't bear the personal responsibility for your sin. And beyond that, if you could come up with excuses, if you could find a reason that your father was unworthy, then no one would want to marry you because you could find a reason to not obey your future husband. The attitude was if you can find any excuse not to submit, you lose your value. Was that equally true for, um, like, I know you're talking about as a, a young woman, but was it equally mm-hmm. true for, for young men in the church? Honestly, I talked to just my brothers in Christ who come from similar churches or from my mm-hmm. church. And something that stood out a lot to me is just the sort of pressure that put on young men, because it's not something I thought about growing up. I thought a lot about how I needed to, you know, look a certain way and have this certain aesthetic 
to me to be a good wife, but I didn't think about the pressure of you have to represent your family before God. You are their only line of communication. You are responsible for their sins. Having those things placed on a young man is, it just really hurts them. It breaks them so much. It hurts everyone involved. Mm-hmm. There's, it does. We end up, we, because especially most, many of our audience are women, a lot of our focus is on the effect on women. But it is true that men, men are hurt uh, by these, and young men too, by these types yeah. of teaching. Uh, it's well, too much to raised. ask. Yeah, it is too much to ask. For me, it meant I lost my communication with God. I didn't have a relationship with God except through my dad. But for a lot of these young men, they had that, plus they had the expectation of they're going to have to take that role. Mm in someone else's life honestly i can't imagine you know i I love my husband but i can't imagine that kind of responsibility being put on his shoulders that he's responsible for my faith and my my sins right for my um sanctification right that's Uh you know and he's he's a good man he's a godly man but i can't imagine him being responsible for that or my sons being responsible for that uh, for their families as they get older yeah, it's, it's dangerous for everyone involved, but the men and the women. So, one of the things uh, that we've been talking about in the various, um, both in some of the books that we've covered and the authors that we've talked to, and with, you know, Ty and uh, Craig, um, are about tactics that there are, there seems to be like a spiritual abuse playbook. Right, that these mm-hmm. these tactics show up again and again, like everyone's using the same playbook, and you can start hearing in the stories you go, "That's so familiar," because this person who doesn't even know you is saying exactly the same thing happened to them in their church. And part of the reason we want to do this is to, you know, so if people are sitting here listening and going, yeah, "I'm kind of wondering about my church situation," and they hear these things, they go, they can put words to it, right, and say, "Oh, I see. Yes, I see how that's wrong, and I see that this is what I'm dealing with." And so. Could you talk a little bit about some of the the tactics that you've experienced? And these would be things like gaslighting or control, manipulation, threats, you know, whatever they that you're familiar with, what situations that you dealt with, what are some of the tactics you've experienced? So I think that the most common tactic that I saw in all three of the churches I was in is gaslighting, mm-hmm. just a redefining of reality. So if you had a problem that you did have to go to the elders about something like that, there was always the way of reworking it to make you the problem. And I saw this so often that I got to the point where I was writing, I would write in my journal, right? And I would write an entry and then rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it, just slowly changing my reality to make myself the problem in the situation and ignoring the other things that were going on. It was just something that was so ingrained into my culture, into my family, into my church. That's how I learned how to function is I was gaslighting myself rather than processing. Um, Other tactics I definitely saw would have been just different forms of manipulation besides gaslighting. Like there was a sort of silent shaming that would go on, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you didn't look a certain way, if you didn't act a certain way, we acknowledged that there were matters of conscience, but you would be ostracized if you didn't fit exactly in with what everybody else was doing. 
people would stop wanting to hang out with you. People would very quietly let you know that what you were doing was sinful. And so there was just this attitude of like, if I want to be a part of this church, if I want to be a part of this community, then I have to look exactly like them. So that was kind of used to control then. It definitely was a form of control. Um, It came from the pastors, but mostly it came from just the other members of the church. You know, I know some people are probably thinking, oh, this is just an extreme situation that you've been through, but this is in our circles. Mm -hmm. It is. um, People are always really shocked because whenever I talk about cults, they don't think reformed churches or popular denominations. And I mean, the church where I had the arranged marriages was a lesser known denomination that was in the CPC, which is only like 10, 12 churches in the U.S. But I was in the NCFIC and in the SBC, which are larger denominations. And these sorts of these controlling tactics and gaslighting, that all happened in these churches too. Yeah, one thing I've seen um, specifically with people newer to reformed or reformedish circles is they'll think that family integrated church just means that the kids are in the service. And so we will have somebody come in and say, I'm looking for a reformed family integrated church. And Mm -hmm. people who even were describing their Presbyterian church is family integrated. And we have gone over and over and say, okay, family integrated church means far more than mm-hmm. it doesn't just mean your kids are in service with you. Right. It's, it's we far wish more that's than all it meant. Yeah. yeah. And we visited one once not knowing what we were getting into. And <laughs> it was, um, it was time for communion and the, all the husbands went up to the front. And mm-hmm. if let's say a single woman was there or, divorced or her husband wasn't there, then her son would go up and they would, and then the fathers were giving, they were serving communion to their families. And there was a, there was a lot more to it than Mm -hmm. just your kids are in the service. Cause my kids have always been in the service in the PCA and OPC, but we're not a family integrated church. We don't have those other, other Mm -hmm. elements, but maybe um, just as a side note, can you, maybe list some, I think you've kind of already talked about some of those other elements, like the mm-hmm. essential, essentially re, um, arranged marriage under the mm-hmm. heading of courtship. But what, right. what are some other things that you saw in kind of that family integrated church movement? Well, you just brought up the communion. And, you know, as I talk about the father's a mediator, that was a huge part of the way that we saw communion because the fathers got to determine who in their families would get communion. And so I didn't get communion unless my stepdad was willing to administer it to me. And it was entirely based on a whim in my family. In other families, it wasn't quite the same. But my salvation, my relationship with God was dependent on how pleased my father was with me because he got to decide who in the family got communion. It wasn't up to me to evaluate myself to decide whether or not that was something I wanted to partake in. Those decisions were always made for me. I mean, really, of the father essentially functioning as a priest, mm-hmm. being the one to administer sacraments, um, you know, when they do baptism, does the father do the baptisms? Um, so that was up to individual families. My stepdad did baptize me one of the times I was baptized, been baptized a few times. Um, normally, it depended on the church. In the Baptist churches I was in before I became Presbyterian, it was 
typical for the father or the husband to baptize. In the Presbyterian church, the elders did do it, but you did it with your parents with you. And some of this stuff we're talking about may be foreign to a lot of our listeners that this this goes on. But one of the things Rachel talked about how we kind of have identified things that seem to be part of this spiritual abuse playbook. And one of the things that we hear of a lot is how scripture was used to control. Mm-hmm. I mean, really misused to control. Yeah, absolutely misused. Did you, yeah. Yeah. Did you have some examples of that? Sure. I mean, there's so many. Everything from taking Titus 2 to mean that women shouldn't ever leave the home. Like, as a young woman, I didn't, or I wasn't supposed to leave my house unless I was under the protection of my father. So, if I wasn't going somewhere with my dad, I wasn't supposed to leave at all. To verses, let's see, what are other good examples? There's a verse in Hebrews that talks about obedience to the elders. That was always taken way out of context to mean implicit, immediate obedience, no matter what right? I definitely saw verses taken out of context in that way. Yeah, it usually, and the stories that we've heard where it's like this extreme interpretation mm-hmm. um, of that and the obeying elders. One thing Rachel and I've talked about on this podcast is what submitting to elders means and what it doesn't mean. You know? Right, yeah. Um, another good example of this, something I was talking about pretty recently, was the way that we viewed actual political voting and political involvement. So part of my actual church covenant with the CPC specified that because women are not supposed to have authority over men, women could not vote. Like in political? Yes. Um, So you were not, women were not supposed to participate in political elections, local elections, national elections, because that was the role of the head of the household. And that was something that we had to sign on to join the church. So was it, did they do the head of household voting and congregational meetings too? Um, Well, I was never involved in those meetings. Um, (laughs) As a girl, I did not attend. And I don't think that's something our whole church did. That was something that my family did specifically though. Um, But even whenever I was being excommunicated, I didn't get to go to the court meetings when we had the Presbytery Court, we had a national Presbytery Court that met over it. And I was um, technically excommunicated for flirting, which is a long story that did not actually involve me flirting with anyone, but. Excommunicated for flirting. <laughs> yes. Because flirting is a sin based on which scripture? Um, You know, I'm sure it's in there somewhere, maybe like the book of second fundamentalism. Uh, yeah. But we also believe that attraction at all was a sin, which is kind of where we got this. Because if you were feeling attraction, then you were stealing that attraction from your future spouse. Oh, goodness. Because, you know, attraction is a finite thing. You can only have so much of it in your life. You don't want to waste it. That, that sounds a lot like the some of the purity culture teachings. Mm-hmm. A lot of the purity culture teachings came in. We were very heavy into purity culture. We normally would take things a couple steps further. But most of the teachings that come from purity culture were there and are kind of what we built our teachings on. But no, basically what happened is the second person I was arranged to marry was a couple years older than me. I think he was like 22 at the time. I was 16. Wow. And he asked me about a book in the church library and we were not supposed to speak 
to each other. I never spoke to a person of the opposite gender at church unless I was with my parents, right? And even then it was heavily discouraged. Normally what you do, if you wanted to talk to someone and get guys' eyes, you'd, you know, go and talk to their sister right beside them. And you direct conversation at each other by talking to someone else. And there's so many little ploys that we came up with as teenagers to get around the rules without actually talking to each other. It didn't keep anyone from flirting. But it's like it's like Victorian <laughs> fan language. Right. It, it really was. <laughs> Yes. Um, wow. No, we talked a lot about Victorian fan language at that point, actually. Kind of amusing. <laughs> <laughs> that and the language of the flowers, you know, like we had all of those little <laughs> subversive ways of talking to each other. It's great. Uh, but he asked me about a book actually by Kevin Swanson that was in the church library. And the book was titled Apostate. And he asked me if I had read it. And I said, yes, it was good. And one of the elders' wives overheard the conversation. And we weren't alone in the library. There were other girls in the library. But somebody overheard us having this very short conversation. And what ended up happening is he basically ran off. He ran away and joined the military whenever he found out about the fact that we were being arranged to be married. And then I got excommunicated for the conversation. So was there there more blame placed on women as is the case in purity culture oh absolutely yes um the rules for like creating boundaries and keeping boundaries was always placed on the women and not on the men it wasn't a man's job to even uphold those boundaries they were kind of expected to push the boundaries and to take advantage of girls but it was my role to have the boundaries keep the boundaries enforce the boundaries and your and fault just, if those were, if they And were. my fault if somebody did push past those boundaries. Right. It definitely creates a very perverted view of men. And the way that you see guys is kind of as these sex machines. Mm-hmm. That have no control. That have no control. And it's your job to manage them. But at the same time, you have to listen to all of them and do what all of them say all of the time. Yeah, I was just thinking that. That's so, so bizarre because I put this where the the husband or the dad is um, mediating and yet all this pressure essentially Mm -hmm. is on the women. No, and the way that we viewed um, sexual assault or predation is really weird. To give kind of a short example of that, that isn't too severe with my story. When I was about 12 years old, I was playing with some little girls that were from our church, right? And we went and got on the trampoline and all of us are wearing these very long flowy skirts, of course, right? we looked very much like homeschoolers. And one of the boys who was a couple years older than us, I think was 15 or 16 at that time, went and got underneath the trampoline to look up our skirts. And I went and told my stepdad who was with us what was going on. And I got in trouble for it. Mm-hmm. Because you're on the sk- on there where he could see up your skirt. Exactly. It was my fault. I was not being ladylike. It wouldn't have happened if I was being ladylike. And then the next Sunday, that boy's father, I guess somebody had told him what happened. I don't know if another girl had talked to her parents about it or something like that, but he came up and he started talking to my stepdad about what had happened. Right. And they were just laughing about it. And I heard him say, well, you know, it's just boys being boys. So even in this very extreme situation, like very extreme culture, I should say, the phraseology that you have in 
just secular culture of like, oh, boys are going to do what they're going to do. Still applied. Mm. But we had all of the guilt and shame that came with purity culture that was placed on me. And, and in case anyone's listening and, and not sure, this isn't right. <laughs> we're, we're not, no, it's not right. No, this is right and good. It's not the proper responses. It's not <laughs> the way it should be. Um, and if, even if you hear us kind of laugh, it's it's the laughter of, I can't believe that they would take it to that extreme, right? It's not really funny, right? We're not <laughs> treating it lightly. It's just... Like how how can they go that way, right? How would you say that? I mean, first off, you you have girls that you make wear dresses, right? Because it's inappropriate to wear shorts, and girls are playing as little girls, and then boys take advantage of that, and it's the girls' fault, right? That's mm-hmm. it's absolutely ludicrous, and it's inexcusable. And I'm terribly sorry for what you've been through. Um, well, thank you for that. So, how did? You know, this abusive environment, how did it affect you, uh, your relationships, beliefs about yourselves and others, about yourself and others, um, et cetera? You know, what, what effect mm-hmm. did it have on you? Well, goodness, it had quite a bit of an effect. Um, I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD, and that looks like reoccurring nightmares and panic attacks and just constant paranoia that I'm being followed, that I'm being watched. I have a lot of shame just surrounding normal, ordinary things. Um, everything from just wearing colors. That was um, one of our teachings was that women shouldn't wear bright colors. But the way that actually played out is I only wore black, gray, or brown or very dark shades of colors. Because if you were wearing something that was a color, it was an eye trap and you were causing men to lust after you, you were seeking their attention. So even now, if I'm wearing a brighter color at all, or even just a normal (laughs) brightness of a color, then I start feeling myself in panic because I feel like I'm causing other people to sin. Hmm. There's so many small things like that where there's just so much shame attached to something that's seemingly normal. As far as other relationships go, I struggle a lot now with having good relationships with my pastors. That one took me a while to just come to a place where I could feel safe having conversations with my pastor and being open with my pastors. Mm-hmm. It changed the way that I view men significantly. Um, I mean, for starters, I didn't talk to boys at all, ever, until I was about 21. Well, no, yeah. that's not quite true. I think I would have been 20 around 20 years old when the first time that I started talking to boys and it just really beyond just having warped my view of men to be where they're all sex machines, just learning how to socialize normally was very difficult for me. And then I struggled. Like I had crushes on everyone, every boy who talked to me. Cause I didn't learn how to deal with that when I was a tween, I hadn't had to work through how do you handle attraction? How do you handle crushes? So all of it was so extreme at first. I can imagine. Uh, it'd be quite overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And I was still seeing all single guys as potential spouses instead of as people. Mm. Which is one of the things that purity culture does. Is it just makes you view everyone of the opposite gender as a either a potential spouse or a potential rapist. No in-betweens. No in-betweens. Yeah, I heard... Uh- an abuse victim that struggled. Well, what she told me was that any 
any man that was even kind to her, she would have an attraction to um, just because she, this is somebody who had been treated so poorly mm-hmm. by men in her family. So then, you know, getting out in the real world and away from the abuse, a man being even a little nice to her was attractive because she hadn't experienced that. Right. No, something my fiance said when we first started dating um, a little less than a year ago, it's just like, you've been through so much that I don't really have to do anything. Like I could just do nothing for you and you would still feel like I was spoiling you constantly by not, you know, constantly yelling at you. And I don't want that to be your perception of how you're valued. I don't want you to feel like you're being treated well just because you're not being treated poorly. And I'm really thankful for the way that he was intentional about that because I wasn't. I didn't know the difference between not being abused and being treated well. Mm. It's very insightful on his part. Uh, Yes. he's Throughout our whole relationship, he's been really good at being able to look into what I've come through and see how it's impacting me. Mm. And just setting boundaries and working through with me, how can we make our relationship safe for you? That's really good. It's been wonderful. I know there's probably people listening that think, well, this is so obviously abusive, the things that you're sharing. <laughs> but how did it you- wasn't though? <laughs> right. Well, and that's something that people sometimes don't understand, even in abusive marriages and stuff, where mm-hmm. you know, I've gotten messages from women and they'll tell me the most horrible thing I've ever heard. And they'll say, Do you think this is abusive? You know, <laughs> because they're in it and you know, they just, yeah. you, you don't when you're in it. But how did you come to recognize that it was? So I think after the second time I was excommunicated, it, I knew that something was wrong. I knew that it wasn't how it was supposed to be, but I didn't know where it went wrong. I struggled with a lot of just self-blame of like, this is somehow my fault. I took all these wonderful people and made them do these things by my actions. But then after a couple years of that, I eventually got to the point where I was able to go, no, that church wasn't normal. There was stuff that was extreme. I don't know how much of it was extreme, but some of it would had to be wrong. And it would take me about five years of being out of that church to be able to go, no, that was actually a cult. That's what that was. I think a lot of it is whenever you're constantly redefining reality and putting yourself as the problem, you're not able to see abuse. If anything, you're always the abuser. You can't see things. You can't see the power that someone has over you. You can't see the manipulation because you're looking for how you messed up whatever was going on, whether that be your church, your family, friendships. You are looking for how you created the problem constantly. And that's the way that everything is portrayed to you. A lot of that self-blame actually comes from a place of, I don't have control of the situation and I want it to be my fault so I can control it. Mm. I didn't have any autonomy. I didn't have power over what my stepdad was doing. I didn't have power over what my elders were doing. And so making myself the problem meant that I did have some form of control. Mm. And I think for most abuse survivors, the reason that we do that is actually less because we want to be a problem necessarily, but because we want to be able to feel like we have some power over our lives. That's insightful that you realize that and how you describe that. Yeah, it's interesting. I've I've read with um, 
young people who struggle with uh, like eating disorders, uh, anorexia mm-hmm. and bulimia, a lot of times it is about control. It's one thing they can control, right? Even though it's harmful, right? Self-harm. Mm-hmm. It's still a way they feel like they are in control of their life when their life feels out of control. And it's, it's interesting to hear you make that connection uh, mm-hmm. for yourself. No, I mean, those things are definitely there too. Um I wouldn't sleep. Part of that was I couldn't sleep because my parents were almost gone all night long most nights without getting into too much of, you know, that story. But I would just stay up all night constantly. Whenever I first got here, I was sleeping maybe three hours a night whenever I first left home. And I could function on two or three hours of sleep just fine because I had spent years functioning off of two or three hours of sleep a night. I could go days without eating without feeling any impact because I just trained my body to ignore any signs of hunger, of thirst, of temperature. I was disassociating so heavily because of those things that I was doing to maintain some control over my life that I wouldn't be able to feel temperature. I wouldn't be able to feel hunger or thirst. I wouldn't know that I had a headache. I wouldn't know that I was tired. It's amazing when you think about it, like when you, when you put it that way and you're, you're thinking about what you were doing to cope and to live. Mm-hmm. Right? But I thought everything was normal. Everything's fine. Yeah. I'm just, just doing things like starving myself or not sleeping. Perfectly it's normal. Just for the fun of it. Right. Everyone does it. Yeah. I was talking with someone uh, recently about, uh, her own situation and we were talking about things like that and, and about, you know, when it's what you're in, the environment that you're in, it's like, the you know, the frog who's in the water doesn't know it's getting hot because it just is, right? That's what mm-hmm. it is. It's what I'm, I always know this, right? And being able to kind of step back and recognize, okay, this is not right. You know? mm-hmm. uh, it does take distance yeah. from the situation to be able to look at it and go, that's how bad it really is. Have you found that as you've been away? Now oh, for, a while, for sure. Um, whenever I first started talking about leaving, it was after a phone call I had. I um, had messaged somebody who was a celebrity in my group, and or used to be a celebrity in my group, and she had left. And she was running her own business, and she was married and just seemed to be functioning normally. And I was impressed by that because mm-hmm. that was more than the majority of people coming out of my group. And most people most people didn't make it to adulthood, even, you know, staying within the movement. And those who did, like, it just wasn't functional. So I messaged her one day because of an abusive outburst that happened at home. And I just asked her, like, how, how do you keep living this lifestyle? Mm-hmm whenever you don't believe it fully anymore. And what I was referring to at that point is I was referring to the stay-at-home daughter movement, which is basically the idea that daughters need to stay in their father's household until they're married, right? Mm -hmm. And I was just really struggling with that. Like, why am I still here? Do I actually believe that I'm supposed to be here? And what I wanted her to tell me whenever I messaged her was like, oh, it's okay. You don't have to leave. Here are the steps of like staying where you are and still being happy. And that's not what I got. I got her telling me like, hey, you need to leave. This is problematic. The thing like I didn't have a driver's license. I wasn't allowed to, or 
I was taking care of the kids for 13, 14 hours on a daily basis, things like that. Mm. I was functioning as a single parent to five children. That's not normal for a sister. That shouldn't be your life. And just her saying those things, like I started bawling because I didn't want someone to tell me that because I knew it deep down. But I needed it to be okay so that I didn't have to take their personal responsibility to fix it and to step away from it. You've um, talked a little bit about this uh, as we've discussed, but what steps have you taken uh, to to get away from, to recover from uh, the abuse that you've been through? Well, I left home. That was a huge first step, right? I found a safe place to go, a safe church, and moved far away as I could from the church and the family that I was in. I started talking to the pastors here, but I was I was terrified of my pastors. I had I did not want anything to do with church. I didn't want to have anything to do with pastors in general. I was willing to show up on Sunday because I still believed I was supposed to do that, but I didn't want to be there. But I did meet with my pastors and talk to them a little bit and start just creating dialogue. And the church was really good about saying, like, whether or not you're ready to commit to us, we're willing to commit to you. We're going to do it. You need to help you and serve you so that you can grow and heal from this. Mm-hmm. I started therapy. Therapy was a huge part of it. I started listening to other people's stories and telling my story. I started just writing out. That was probably the biggest part is I got a bunch of little blue journals, right? Mm-hmm. And you called them my battle journals. And I would write out a lie or a teaching. And then I'd create an argument about why it was wrong. So I'd write, you know, seven, eight pages ago. Like, this is why this thing isn't true. And I just kept going through each teaching and going, do I believe this? Here's why I believe it. And here's why I don't believe it. Right? Mm-hmm. And that helped me so much just go through what I believed and create, here's what I do want to hold to. Here's what I still believe. So I didn't lose everything. I didn't lose my faith, but still lose the legalism, still lose the false teachings that were holding me back. And, you know, I think that everything you've said up until now could be uh, red, red flags for things. If you see these things, this is probably a red flag. <laughs> um, but is there is there anything else that you would add that is maybe a red flag? One of the things, the story that I have heard a lot is somebody is new to Reformed theology mm-hmm. and they find some church that's under, that we would say these churches are not truly Reformed, at least I would, because they're adding things that are not consistent with Reformed theology. But they find a church near them that is quote-unquote Reformed, and they get in that church and they think, and it's some of the things that you've mentioned, even they think, well, this must be what reformed churches are like. And they kind of get stuck in them that way because they think this must be the outworking of theology, even though it it absolutely isn't. Um, Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we see some of these things, but what are some red flags that people can look for maybe in a church abuse situation where this Mm -hmm. is abuse? Well, something that I saw a lot that led to abuse is you would have people like, say, Bill Gothard or Doug Phillips, um, Bill Gothard of the IBLP Institute of Biblical Life Principles, there we go, and Doug Phillips of Vision Forum, when they had their scandals come out, a lot of people left the reform movement over it, right? 
But you had a lot of other churches that their reaction to a scandal happening, to something bad happening, was like, we need to double down. We need to have more rules. We need to have more structure so that this can't happen again. And I think anytime your reaction to here's a problem is, okay, let's just create more rules, that's a huge red flag. And so much abuse came out of our reaction to Bill Gothard and Doug Phillips because we were trying to avoid that happening again. Was there any, you know, everything that you said, I would I would call this heavy law. Did you hear much about the gospel? I mean, we were theonomists, so the law was very important to us. But as far as the gospel goes, I mean, the gospel was occasionally preached. It was there, but I didn't hear it. I knew theoretically that we were saved by grace alone through faith alone. But I also wanted to be the holiest. I wanted to be the most Christian in our church, right? And we had this competition, one with the outsiders. Whenever I say outsiders, I mean everyone who didn't look and live like us, right? We had a very us versus them mentality. We were the holy ones, we were saved, and they were the opposite of us. Everything the world did, we had to do the opposite of. Um, So if the world like rock music, then drums were simple. If the world dresses are in way, then we needed ankle-length skirts. If the world was listening to this music, then we were going to be exclusive somebody and only listen to hymns and classical music, right? Well, it sounds mm-hmm. like that there's a lot of self-righteousness in those circles. There is. There's a lot of self-righteousness. We created kind of our own gospel around being different. Mm. It was how different are you from the world? And then the more that you sacrifice, the less worldly you seemed, the more holy you were, right? So even compared to our being opposite to the world, we had this competition with the other families in our church to see who could look holier than the rest of the church, who could have the most kids, who could dress the holiest, the most modestly, um, who is eating the holiest. We had a lot of strange dietary restrictions that ran in our crowd. All of those things became our gospel. Look at how different we are. Which is making a new law. Which is making our own new law. It's the same behavior as the Pharisees. And, and I know, didn't see that then. I this is ex- it reminds me, even if it wasn't outspoken, but in in Federal Vision, where they don't distinguish between law and gospel, and so mm-hmm. one of the Federal Vision leaders says everything is gospel. So all law is gospel. And so now the good news, which I say, how is this good news? But now the good news mm-hmm. is I get to obey. And that really does become their gospel, Mm -hmm. that I am obeying these ways well, you know. Mm -hmm. No, we talked a lot about that, about like obedience is faith. Obedience is a sign that you're, you know, faithful to God. If there's no obedience, then there is no faith. And keeping to the law is how we know that you're saved. It's just so anti the gospel. Instead of going, there's no way I can earn this. There's no way I can be good enough for God. We created this culture where we were all better than each other and we were the most Christian. And we did believe that we were better than everyone else. We did believe that we were good enough for God. It's taking the reformed view of election of here are these chosen people. And instead of being humbled by that, of going, there's, I don't deserve this, Lord. We delighted in the fact that we were chosen and other people weren't. 
And you said that you knew that you were saved um, by grace alone, through faith alone. And one of the things is when faith is redefined, we've talked about this with a couple different issues, but when you redefine as faith is obedience, it completely changes what we mean when we say justification by faith alone. Because Absolutely, now, yes. so obedience, I mean, it's by obedience. Mm-hmm. So something I talk about a lot as we're going through these things is if if it's my job, to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to be saved, then that's not the gospel. If my value as a person goes down because I don't obey my father exactly right, or if I'm not obeying the elders exactly right, if that puts my salvation in question, then that's not true gospel. We have to remember that the gospel can't be dependent on ourselves. And all of these rules make it dependent on us. It makes it dependent on us being able to seem more holy and look more holy rather than being dependent on God's grace for us. Yeah. What a heavy burden to bear too. It is a very heavy burden. Because even we as, as reformed Christians, we know that we struggle with disobedience daily, you know, whether it's a bad attitude towards somebody or, you know, any sort of sin struggle. And we know that we can go to Christ and be reminded that we are forgiven and it didn't sound like you had any of that. You had this do better mm-hmm. <laughs> or else. Well, right. We would take um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? And the definition of repentance was to hate your sin and to forsake it, right? Mm-hmm. To be sorry for sin, to hate and forsake it, I think is the exact wording. And so basically, if you wanted to repent, you just stop sinning. That's what I thought repentance was growing up. And that's not what the catechism ever meant, but that's the way that I always read it because I, the way that I viewed obedience and the way that I viewed faith, I thought repentance was just stopping sinning. I didn't have a category for struggling with sin. I didn't have a category for having faith in Christ to forgive me for sins, even whenever I continue in them and I struggle with stopping yeah, what's that thing, Rachel? Because I think it would fit right here that you uh, that I have you share often that you're um, uh, for our college minister. minister. Yeah, because yeah. I think it fits right here. Yeah, it's the difference between um, uh, struggling to be free or free to struggle, right? So, are you struggling to be free? Are you trying to earn your salvation through, mm-hmm. or your your standing with God through your work or your obedience, or are you have you been set free by the gospel and now you are free to struggle? Um, through the power of the gospel, uh, struggle against your sin, uh, and that—that's really the key distinction between you know the reformed understanding of justification and sanctification, and all of the misunderstandings and and um, bad doctrine out there mm-hmm. um, that messes those two up. It does mess that up, and it mars the gospel. Mm-hmm. It takes away from the beauty of God. If it's Mm -hmm. dependent on us looking a certain way, if there is a hierarchy of, you know, Christians, people can be more Christian than each other, then that takes away from how good Christ is. Did you have kind of a difficult view of God? Because I'm thinking if this is everything you're told and hearing from other people who've been through similar church situations, I saw God as angry at them. They didn't Mm -hmm. see the, you know, come to me, all of you who are, weary and heavy laden. They didn't see the um, gentle and lowly Christ. It was this um, legalistic God that was cracking the whip, better obey or else, you know. 
Yeah, it definitely distorted my view of God. I viewed God as wrathful, as vengeful. I saw him as, it wasn't a personalized view of God, right? He was this abstract. Even though I was saved, I still viewed him as kind of an abstract, as far from me. And I did, I definitely felt his anger towards me. I felt just like, how do I say this? I think a lot of it comes from just being in a situation where I was being physically abused and where there's a lot of anger in my household because my stepdad was supposedly the best representation of God in my life. The way that I viewed God was through that lens. And so I saw him as kind of an extension of my dad rather than seeing my dad as an extension of God's grace to me. I think that's not uncommon. No, I was going to say it's very common to to you know our our views about god are often influenced by our our relationship with our parents for good or for ill right if we have mm-hmm. a relationship we tend to see god certain ways if we have a difficult relationship or if there's an abusive relationship that tends to bleed over into our views about what god must be like um, mm, yeah absolutely uh, and you know when you're in these very legalistic uh very uh spiritually abusive situations and you know the these people in your life who are, you know, they're told that this this is God's representation in your life, and they're abusive and unkind and harsh. And then you think, well, God must be, you know, capricious and easily angered and yeah, out to get me because He's always looking for faults. And you know, it, and mm-hmm. I've seen this. I'm not saying this about you particularly. I've seen this in many. Uh, particularly women that I've talked to and and as they and p- kids who grew up in abusive households and they start talking about what they had to work through in their relationship with God after leaving an abusive situation. And it's, I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot to deal mm-hmm. with. Um, it is. Um, going back to the battle journals that I mentioned earlier, one of those journals was just who is God? And I started with Jesus because I had realized I did not like saying Jesus' name. Like, I didn't, I would say in Jesus' name, but I almost always said my Savior, if I was going to refer to Jesus or Christ, or I would talk about God as, you know, just all of God. But specifying that it was Jesus was hard for me, and I didn't understand exactly why. And a lot of it just came down to, I didn't know him. Hmm. He seemed like he was less important because of the way that I viewed the Trinity, And he seemed, how do I say this? It seemed like God the Father was the God I was supposed to be close to. Mm -hmm. And that I didn't need to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit or with Jesus. But I started with Jesus and I just started writing out verses and just trying to understand who is he? What is his character like? And then I went to God the Father and then to the Holy Spirit. And as I was writing, I began to realize that God's anger, the anger that we talk about when we talk about God, is actually coming from a desire to protect and to love. He has this incredible creation that he's pouring his love out on, and sin hurts it. Sin destroys it. And so his anger at sin is in a desire to protect what he loves. And that helped me so much with my view of God. It wasn't an easy process. It didn't happen immediately. But writing through those verses and journaling through, like, where am I with my view of God? Who is he? Helped me so much to just recreate a better view of him. Well, I'm really glad for that, that you were able to work through that. Because that's, that's very much key to understanding who he is and his love for us. And, you know, that 
it's like in our we we did an episode and read them through gentle and lowly about god's heart for his people such a wonderful book oh it's gorgeous like it's just so encouraging so such a good reminder you know Mm -hmm. remembering that that god isn't capricious and angry and harsh you know that's not his his primary focus right his his focus towards us um, as believers, is, is his love for us and his um, yeah, his heart for us. It's not that he's angry and Jesus is loving, and you know the Father's angry and Jesus is loving, and because of Jesus, then God isn't angry. You know, it's it's so much more than that. And it's always been about his love for us, right? And that's once right you can from the beginning. Recenter your understanding that way. It really resets all of the rest of your understanding of grace and the gospel and what it means to be a believer and what what is why we obey and how we obey and all of those things become you know better understood whenever i first left i was constantly expecting god to try to set traps for me to fall into right like Uh, he was going to have laws i didn't know about that then like it wasn't clear in scripture or there'd be laws that you have to really know scripture to get. And I was going to miss them and he was going to catch me or that he was setting up traps and situations where I was going to fail him just so that he could be angry at me. Mm. And that isn't God. Um, Working through that was a huge part of just like understanding my identity in Christ, but also that God, wants me to be his god wants me to be obedient to him god wants me to love him and that he's in me with that it's not that is god against me and i'm you know right fighting to make him love me it is that god was with me in my struggles it was going to empower me to be able to overcome the things i was struggling with that's a very good point what encouragement would you give others who are in abusive particularly church situations what would you say to someone who's listening today this isn't what God wants for you. God didn't create the church to be a place of hurt. He created it to be a place of love, of healing. One thing that my church says a lot is gospel safety time is what we need to heal, right? We need the gospel. We need to know who God is and what he's done for us. We need just time. There's not expectations. They're not deadlines for being a good Christian or for healing. And you need safety. You need a place to recover. Try to find a church that has those things. Find communities where you can be open about what has happened to you. Find people to listen. Because there are other people out there who have been through similar things and who can encourage you. But until you're willing to go out and find those people or share your story with others, you're not going to be able to find people who can relate to you and help you through it. It sounds like you found a good support system that helped you work through all of this. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, I've had just some dear friends who've come alongside me virtually, friends I met online, and then I have a really solid church home. And it's been super supportive and encouraging as I've walked through healing. And that makes a big difference. I know that sometimes, like you said earlier, it's hard to trust, you know, a pastor or a church when you've been through these difficult situations. Oh, it's terrifying. And it probably takes some time to be able to build up that trust. It takes time. But honestly, I think just knowing that 
the church was willing to serve me here, whether or not I was ready to serve it, or whether or not I was ready to commit to it, gave me a lot of trust in the pastor and the church here. But then just seeing the way that they served others, I wasn't the only person coming out of an abusive situation. I wasn't the only person healing. The majority of my church has things that they have to recover from. And just realizing that's normal, whether or not you're coming from a cult, it's normal to have to heal. And for the church to be able to come alongside each other is huge. I got to see other people served by the church and other people heal, which meant that I could be safe to heal here. That vulnerability is important. Well, I I am so encouraged hearing you talk because I know the Lord has worked so much in your life, even after going through all this. I mean, it's it's something that you'll probably continue to have to work through. And one of the things we, we were all chatting before uh, we started recording, and one of the things, and Rachel and I have said this, you know, countless times, the importance of getting professional help. Mm-hmm. Um, good pastoral counsel can be very, very helpful, but professional counseling is also mm-hmm. important. There, There's different things you would work through with each of those. And it sounds like you've had some some very helpful counsel. I have, um, both through my pastors and through just going to therapy, having a therapist. And definitely what I work through with each side is different. Um, I've been able to go to my pastor about like theologically what I'm struggling with and just my view of God, things like that. And I rely more on my therapist for just more of the practical things of like, how do I deal with the shame or I'm having panic attacks when I think about this. Mm-hmm. And there's different strengths from both. I'm so thankful that I've been able to have both of those things in my life as I've been healing. Yeah. I'm, gl- I'm glad also I'm um, so many things that you said were just so insightful and I think will really be helpful to people in these situations. We we have listeners that are still in abusive situations mm-hmm. and feel hopeless and or aren't sure what to do. I would like to just ask you, what when you realized it was an abusive situation, did it take you some time to say, okay, I need to get out? Um, let's see. When did I realize it was abuse? I don't think I used the word abuse until about two weeks before I left home. Before that, I knew it was wrong, but I wasn't using that word. I really was scared of the word abuse. Hmm. It would take me another like eight months before I could even say the words physical abuse to apply to my situation or before I could recognize just how bad it was. Whenever I look back on it, I think that the first time I realized that something was wrong is I was talking to a different friend who was having a situation with her dad where she wasn't allowed to leave home to get or to go to work. She didn't have a driver's license, things like that. And it was very similar to my situation. And I knew for her sake that it was a problem. I knew that it was wrong. I knew that it was evil. So I was beginning to realize like, okay, my own situation is bad. And that was about three months before I left home. Mm-hmm. But it, it was definitely after I left that I finally felt safe to use the word abuse and began to have the objectivity to be able to look back and realize how bad things were. I was purposefully not acknowledging the harder parts of my story at that point because I couldn't. I couldn't process them. Yeah. And as 
the stories I was telling, I didn't feel like were that bad. That's what I found talking to other survivors is normally people don't ever feel like it's that bad. There's always someone out there who has a worse story than you. And so you feel like, oh, well, that didn't happen to me. So I don't need to leave. And I think I did that for years. I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but I was constantly comparing myself to people who did have more extreme stories that going, well, see, that means that what's going on with me is okay. And it doesn't actually make it okay. I think that's a really important point. I'm glad. I'm glad that you said that um, because I think that that is, even when um, somebody reaches out to me and says, well, this is what's happening, but you know, it's not that bad, you know? my husband or my church or whatever isn't doing this, you know? (laughs) And, you know, it's, I think that that may be a common thing with abuse victims. It's a very common thing as I think part of it is it's scary to leave. It's Mm -hmm. scary to seek help to leave. It's scary to acknowledge the problems. And so if you can find someone who has a worse story than you, I say a worse with um, air quotes here because it's, it's really difficult to compare trauma. It's not a linear hierarchy, right? Of how there's not a scale of bad to worse. It's trauma. also not, it's not an Olympic competition, right? There's not it's a, gold also medal not a competition. Worse. You don't like, there's yeah. this score of like, ah, yay. <laughs> I have the worst story out of everyone else. <laughs> not a competition. Any of us should want to win. Exactly. But when we do that, we like to compare ourselves and go, surely this person has it worse than me, which means I don't have room to have problems. Mm, Not just in abuse situations. I think we do that with everything. Yeah, we do that with suffering a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) People will say that to me. Well, I'm struggling with this. I know it's not as bad as what you're going through, but I'm like, don't compare sufferings. You know, just don't compare abuses. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or I... I tend to compare healing now. I kind of still have the same mindset, honestly. Mm-hmm. Before I was comparing my suffering to other people's suffering and going, well, it's not as bad as that person. So what's happening to me is okay. And now I tend to look at other people's healing process and going like, well, why can't I just be like that? Why can't I do better than I'm doing right now? And even if it's not to other people, I compare myself with, you know, the speed I was healing whenever I first left home or I start setting arbitrary goals I actually had a calendar where I was writing out, like, by this date, I'm going to have mastered this problem. By this date, I'm going to have mastered this problem. And I would get so upset whenever it didn't work. (laughs) So I couldn't keep the schedule in my own healing process. That's Mm -hmm. not something that you can force. Yeah. With another friend, she and I have been talking a lot about her own situation and things that she's dealing with. And and we get the same conversation. She's like, well, you know, really, it wasn't, it's not that bad. It could could be worse. And I'm like, well, yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean. It could always be worse. Right? But, There's always something that could okay. be worse than it is. Like, it doesn't know? make it good. Like What's going on right now is not okay. Even if it's not worse, it's still not okay. Mm-hmm. You're not wrong to say this is wrong. It is wrong. It's a wrong mm-hmm. thing, and it's it's appropriate to address it. And um, But, yeah, I think that, you know, and it, it is a lot of that rationalization in ourselves. We, we rationalize because we want, you're right, it's scary to think about leaving. Um, mm-hmm. It is scary to think about admitting that this is your life, right? This is your... No one chooses this. Right. No one wants to be an abuse survivor. Right. No one wants to come out of a cold. Mm-hmm. And so you work through these things and normally you start immediately blaming yourself whenever you have those thoughts of like, that isn't real. I just want attention. 
I'm just look like I'm just creating all of this stuff. No, you're not. Like it's easier to say I'm crazy and I'm making stuff up than it is to recognize that it happened. I think you bring up uh, an important point for all of our audience that there are a lot of abuse victims that in the church specifically that are afraid to speak up because they've seen abuse victims not be taken serious. Absolutely. Every time I see somebody come out about their abuse and I'll watch responses from friends, from family, from other people. And I've done that since I was pretty young and just creating this mental list of like, this is somebody I can, like, I could tell this is not someone I could tell. Mm. And you begin so early, I think in life of just being able to see that like this person will believe me and this person won't. And it's so heartbreaking whenever you can look at your church or you can look at your family and go, these people will not tr- trust me. Yeah, it's a good reminder that, that we need to, you know, when someone speaks up, I've seen, you know, um, domestic violence, women speak up and them not be, it's not being taken seriously in, in the church, almost like, well, she's probably exaggerating, you know, or things <laughs> like that. And uh, it's, it's heartbreaking. And I think it's, I'm hoping that that is changing because of all of the conversations that are being had about abuse. You mentioned um, Control Freak Christianity podcast, and that's, that's um, another podcast for those who aren't familiar with it that's really tackling some of these um, difficult abuse situations that have happened in the church. So I'm glad for them, you know, how, because I think it's encouraging these conversations. And I know for a fact that a lot of people are hearing these conversations like on Theology Gals, like mm-hmm. on Control Freak Christianity, and they're going to their pastor and saying, okay, how do we as a church deal with abuse when it comes up, you know? Mm-hmm. And those conversations are starting to happen, not just on podcasts, but in local churches. That's so important. The church needs to know how to serve abuse victims because there's a lot of us. Um, it's a surprising amount of people coming out of these movements. I'm so thankful that there is platforms to have this dialogue because we are seeing people come more aware. We're seeing pastors reach out and go, hey, I think I have a member of my church who went through something like you. How do I help? I'm seeing parents reach out and say like, hey, we left a church kind of like the one you're describing. What can I do for my kids to help them heal? Mm-hmm. Such an important set of questions. It, it really is. is so important. Yeah. I think the first step for all of this is listen. Mm-hmm. We have to be willing to listen to the people who've come out of it. That is so, so important. And there, it's very possible that many of us have people in our own churches who've been through situations that aren't at the place where they can talk about it yet and, and things like that. So we need to create a safe, safe space, essentially, in the church where somebody can safely talk about it and be loved and cared for as they work through it. So, that is, that is my hope. Mm-hmm. Well, thank, I know that this cannot be easy to talk about this. Hopefully, it's somewhat therapeutic for you to be able to talk about it. I know that this will be of so much help. Um, like you said, there's a lot of people coming out of this. Um, I think in the homeschool movement that kind of started in the 
in the 90s into the 2000s where we saw a lot of these things on a regular basis. I, I talked to someone who kind of came out of those circles. And so I think there are a lot of people that have come out of come out of this. And I know you've talked to a lot of them too. So, mm-hmm. No, I talk to these people every day. Normally I get one or two messages from someone I've never talked to before um, you know, every day. It's heartbreaking hearing their stories, but it's also so comforting to know that they're leaving. It's a good example of how the Lord, I think in a beautiful way, can take some a very difficult situation and use it for good, using you to be able to talk to other people that are still stuck in it. I'm very thankful for the opportunity. It's hard. Yeah. Um, it's a very hard role to be in. And there are definitely, t- like, I have to set boundaries and keep myself, how do I say this? I have to set boundaries and know my own limits so that I don't overwhelm myself with their stories. Mm-hmm. But That's there's wise. so much hope and encouragement that comes from being able to talk to these people. Just seeing the way that they make progress, seeing the way that they're healing, hearing other stories and knowing I'm not alone. Even even on the hard days where I can't really engage with people about their stories, it means so much to know that there are other people who are growing and healing and are like me. Yeah, that's that's something we've talked about on the podcast and in various different situations where uh, the comfort that comes, I mean, Scripture talks about, I think it's 2 Corinthians 1, that you can comfort somebody um, because you've been comforted by God. You know, various situations that that happens. And it is. It's helpful to talk to somebody who has been through that same thing you've been through. It is. Even if it's not exactly the same, having just the relationship built around, like, there is hurt and there is suffering, but God is still good. Mm -hmm. Even in this, he's brought us out. And our stories can look entirely different, but having that God has brought us out of suffering can create just so much better of appreciation for God and an appreciation for the life that we can lead, the fact that we're not still there. That's very well said. Well, thank you so much for for joining us. We really appreciate it. And I know I'm going to be praying for you because I know you've got a lot on your plate and just appreciate you talking about it. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. And we'll see everyone next week.